Genesis 38, beginning in verse 1. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adullamite, whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite, whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Er. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Chezib when she bore him. And Judah took a wife for Er, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Er, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the seed on the ground so as not to give the offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers. He and his friend Hira, the Adullamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up and set at the entrance to Enaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up, and she, was not given, she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, come, let me come in to you for he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you may come in to me? He answered, I will send a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it, he said, What pledge shall I give you? She replied, Your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away. Taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adullamite to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, Where is the colt prostitute who was at Anaim at the roadside? And they said, No colt prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also the men of the place said, No colt prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, Let her keep the things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat, and you did not find her. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, Bring her out and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, By the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, Please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, She is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, Shelah, and he did not know her again. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. But as he drew, but as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore his name was called Perez. 
Afterward, his brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we approach your word now, we pray that you would, through this means of grace, instruct our hearts. Would you teach and build us up? Would you cause us to see, even in such a difficult passage, wonderful things from your word? Lord, that's something only you can do. So would you do it among us today, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in case you thought I should have skipped the genealogies because they were boring, I don't think anyone has fallen asleep. More than the fact that this is um, not boring, it is scandalous, it is illicit, it seems out of place. If we were zooming out a little bit, it seems out of place even in how it is orchestrated or organized, rather, in the text. It may seem out of place to be read on a Sunday morning or out of place to be preached on in church, and yet here it is, recorded in the canon of Scripture, God's holy word to us for our benefit and our blessing. We're told that all Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for teaching, for correcting, for rebuke, for training in righteousness. And so this is God's word to us. And so we pray that it would have that, that effect. As we look at the text, there are a number of themes that we see in it, themes that many of which are familiar to us from the book of Genesis so far. For example, we see that God works through sinners. God works in spite of sinners. God even uses sinners like you and like me, people who fail and fail again to accomplish His purposes. And that gives us hope, doesn't it? We see another theme of transformation. The Judah that we're presented with in the beginning of this chapter, and this chapter covers more than 20 years. Uh, It kind of is sped up in the beginning and then kind of slows down for the second episode. So there's quite a bit of time that passes. And the Judah that we see at the end of the chapter is not who we expect from the Judah that is described to us at the beginning of the chapter. We see some kind of transformation. We see the pattern of God's commands being ignored and the fallout that comes from disobedience throughout this chapter. We see the theme of deception. How many times have we seen deception in Genesis? We see disguises. How many times have we seen disguises in Genesis? We even see a goat being used. How many times have we seen goats used to trick and disguise? Not to mention the pattern of the younger brother surpassing the older brother in honor, something we've seen again and again in Genesis. So this really isn't out of place. It's here for a reason. And when we juxtapose it against the story, the beginning of the story of Joseph that we looked at last week, we see a number of parallels that are made as well. While we'll hit on a number of these things that I mentioned, I want us to focus particularly on the theme of transformation. We, we touched on this a little bit last week with Joseph. You know, we saw Joseph as a bit of a spoiled kid. He was spoiled. His father favored him, that's clear. And Joseph kind of acted spoiled. He was all too eager to tell his brothers of, their, of his dreams. And his dreams, the content of them didn't help the situation, that they would one day bow down to him. And this seemed to feed that immaturity. And yet we see Joseph beginning to be transformed. We, we skipped ahead a little bit. We saw uh, further, we know the story of Joseph. It's one that's familiar to us. But that theme of transformation. In the same way, that, 
that we think of the transformation that happened in Joseph's life, it was from a suffering that he endured that was done to him by the hands of others. The suffering that we see Judah experience is at his own hand. It is the consequences of his own sin. But more than just the consequences of sin, I want us to see how God uses repentance, the pain, and yes, repentance is painful, the the pain that is involved both in the consequences of our sin, but also the pain that's involved as he redeems us to lead us in repentance, that that too does a transforming work in our lives. There's no other explanation for the transformation that we see in Judah, because by the end of the chapter, we see someone who is simply inconsistent with the Judah that we're introduced to in the beginning. Something radical, something really stunning Although there is still the pain and the ripple effect and the consequences of the sin, you see it's in the middle of this mess, and let's face it, chapter 38 is just one big mess, that from all of this comes the path of redemption. And I hope that we'll see that today. When we come to Scripture, we come with certain expectations, and I find Ian Duguid's writing on this particularly helpful. He says that we want stories that are heartwarming, designed to inspire us to good, clean, moral living. In its place, we find a far more profound hope. This disturbing passage, Genesis 38, moves beyond the ravages of sin to provide a picture of hope, transformation, and divine breakthrough for Judah and Tamar. It is the story of God triumphing triumphing over the evil in and among us. Sometimes God triumphs through harnessing our evil thoughts, words, and actions for purposes we have never intended. Think of how profound that is. That God is so mighty, He can harness even our sinful acts to accomplish His purposes. That, you know, we say our sinful acts can't thwart His plans. That's one thing. He's powerful. We acknowledge that. But to think that he could use our sin to accomplish his purposes? We know it's true. We know it's no no more clear than the cross, right? But yet that's still really hard to get our heads around. It's really, really hard to imagine not only why this story is here, but how God could use it for good. Think of Peter when he denied Jesus, something he was warned he would do. And when he was warned, what did he respond? How did he respond? Never. I'll never do it. And yet, what did he do? Three times he denied Jesus. Think of David's adultery. Did he repent? No, he carried on. He lived, he wallowed in a sin and murdered Uriah, Bathsheba's husband. And yet, as we look back on those accounts, we see both men repented. Both men were restored In fact, what Jesus said to him in his warning to Peter, before he ever denied him, this is what Jesus said in Luke 22, 32, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers before Peter ever sinned. And what did David write in Psalm 51 following his repentance from sin? In Psalm 51, 13, we read, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. And so likewise, when we look at Judah's story, we see in it one that instructs us that we would repent. 
That we would turn from our sin, that we would not remain in sinful patterns, but that we would turn, that we would recognize the grace of God, that we would be strengthened and empowered by this great mercy of God. You see, the theme is not the repentance and transformation of Judah as some biblical hero. I know I say this a lot. I'll probably say it again once or twice as we go through not just Genesis, but any narrative in Scripture. The theme is the work of the true biblical hero, our God, who in His mercy elects us and calls us and regenerates our hearts. He gives us new life. He takes out the heart of stone and He gives us a heart of flesh. That's what we see happening here in this passage. The transformation that God does. He is the biblical hero. And so as we begin looking at the life of Judah, we don't need much help to see that his life is headed in a path that is not healthy. He's not headed in the right direction. The the text opens up saying that he is on the path to find a wife among the Canaanites. Already, God had warned his people not to do this. Abraham told his sons not to. This had been passed down in the family of Israel that's now growing into the nation of Israel But this is not about preserving ethnic identity. Don't misunderstand that. This is not about preserving ethnic identity. This is about holiness. This is about remaining set apart, about not being swallowed up by the the power and the forces of those who oppose God. The New Testament captures the idea that we should not be unequally yoked, recognizing how fickle our hearts are. And we see this... It happens in Judah's life. Judah's life is a textbook case of what it means to run with the wrong crowd. He leaves the family of faith. He goes off on his own. And we see in the very beginning, he has this friend named Hira. How many of us or people that we know and love have stories of running with the wrong friend, getting wrapped up with the wrong crowd? And Hira seems to be a part of this equation. Hira appears throughout the story. He remains a friend to Judah, and I think of the book of he, uh, the book of Proverbs rather, and the warnings that are given. It's this language of a father to a son in the book of Proverbs, warning him to walk with the wise. And one of the things that he says is in the opening verses, Proverbs one fifteen, in talking to his son about not 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 walking with sinners, he says, "My son, do not walk in the way with them. Hold back your foot from their paths." This doesn't mean that we don't have relationships with unbelievers. It means that we're cautious, that we're careful. That if we want to grow wise, the proverb says, walk with the wise and you'll grow wise. And the inverse of that, like any good proverb, we can take and understand more than just the statement says. The inverse of that says, if you walk with fools, guess what? And we're all susceptible to it. None of us are strong enough to do that. And so we're just we're cautious when we when we build relationships with unbelievers. But something like marriage is of course very very different because it's the uniting of a man and a woman and they become one flesh, they become one entity. And so it doesn't work for a believer and an unbeliever to come together like that. So there's a warning to not do that. But there's one more thing to consider about Judah. You know, we might tend to be sympathetic because of our own experience. Maybe you were ready to to fly the coop when you were a young man or a young woman. Maybe you wanted to get out of the little town that you grew up in and wanted to spread your wings and fly. And so you look at what Judah's doing and think, oh, he's just sowing some wild oats. 
Well, I mean, it does seem to be that's what Judah's doing. It's the time in his life at this point when he steps out and goes off and does his own thing, and that's part of the story, but it's more than that. You see, he's not just miscalculated who he's hanging out with. He's miscalculated one other important thing, that is, you can't escape yourself. We, we quote my father-in-law, everywhere you go, there you are in our home quite a bit, especially raising 10, 18 teenagers, right? You know, you can, you can remove yourself from this situation or that situation, but everywhere you go, there you are. You can't run away from you. And Judah certainly couldn't run away from himself. We see in Judah this man who is coarse and callous, that he is living according to his appetites. He is a man driven by lust. In verse 2, we read this very kind of staccato, abrupt description of how he obtained his wife, who interestingly is never named. She's just referred to as the daughter of Shua. We see that he saw, he took, he went into her, she conceived and bore a son. We've seen this type of writing used by the author before to demonstrate something that is very crass, very harsh. So Judah here is one that is being painted as such, that he is a man that lives. He's not living according to love. He hasn't fallen in love with this woman. He is living according to his lusts. And soon Judah is now a father to three sons, and they grow up. And you can see how this this time span it covers nearly 20 years moves very fast. And now the sons are grown at the age the oldest one is, is ready to be married. And so Judah goes out to find a wife for him. This is how Tamar enters into the story, into, into the family. And although ages aren't given, most scholars believe she's really young. Uh, women were married, uh, men and women were married at young ages at this time. And in this time, in this culture, this Eastern culture, this family was now her family. This was her identity, her provision, her protection would now come from this clan. And in this culture, there were typically no takebacks. She was no longer a part of her father's family. She was a part of now of Judah's family, married to Er. But in verse 7, we see that Er was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. We're not told why. We're not given any details. We're left scratching our heads But clearly this is serious. In fact, we haven't seen this happen in Genesis. We've only seen two instances where God has required the lives of people in the story of Noah and the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Both of those were groups of people. This is the first time we've seen the requirement of an individual. So this is serious. And then what happens next may sound strange, even more strange to us in our own modern culture. After the death of Er... Judah commands his son, his secondborn, Onan, to go into Tamar to raise up offspring for your brother, verse 8. This act was known as the custom of leveret marriage, and this was designed to preserve the brother's lineage. It would actually be a part or become a part of the Hebrew law. We see it recorded in Deuteronomy 25, 5, and 6. So why is this strange custom becoming, why is this a law? Why does this, how did this come about? What is this purpose of it? Well, Deuteronomy writes that the justification is that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. This is God's way of saying people matter. Individuals matter. And we're not only going to see that this person mattered in the line, but we're going to see that Tamar matters. 
other women matter in the line. It's not just this list of men. We're going to see all of that this morning, but people matter. And the other side that's not mentioned specifically, but we see the provision for it is this was a way to protect the woman because she was no longer a part of her father's household by custom. That's why it's so strange then when Judah later sends her back to her father's house that it was a way of ensuring that she was protected, that she was provided for, especially as she aged. Imagine being a teenage widow and not being able to care for yourself. So this custom, this law was built in to preserve and protect the people. And understanding this, even though it's awkward and strange, can help us appreciate then as the story goes on, especially what happens next. Instead of obeying his father, Onan acted selfishly. And his motivation, we're told, is as old as anybody ever is, it's money. It's the inheritance. Onan realizes that the offspring would be the offspring of the brother, the oldest. And the oldest gets a double portion. If there's no offspring, guess who stands to gain more? Onan. And so he acts in this way for his own benefit. And he uses Tamar for his own advantage, and God judges Onan. And now his life is over. Judah has now lost two of his sons because of their wickedness, the text says. And Shelah, the youngest, is next in line. Tamar is now betrothed by this law. According to this law, she is now betrothed to Shelah. But Judah becomes superstitious. He says or the text in verse 11 says, he feared that Shelah would die like his brothers. He thought Tamar was the problem, not their wickedness. He thought she had some bad juju on her or something, and somehow that, that, that he would now lose his youngest son if he allowed them to be married. And so he acts without faith, without any sense of awareness of the wickedness and sin of his sons. He acts selfishly, and he creates this smoke screen and says, well, Sheila's too young, you know, later on, uh, and so she remains betrothed to him. And then he does this thing of sending her back to her father's house. So here she now is to remain a widow in her father's house, and she's unable to marry because she's betrothed to Sheila, which puts her in danger, which is a sin against her, and Judah's sin would not end there. In verse 12, we learn that after some time passes, Judah's wife dies, And following his time of mourning, he goes up to Timnah for the festivities that surround the sheep shearing time. If you grew up in a farm community, you know that the time around harvest is a time of celebration and so forth, and this is what was happening. And Timnah just happened to be in the area of Tamar's father's house. Word travels quickly. Tamar finds out that Judah is coming. And so she comes up with a a plan, a trick her father-in-law. She plays into Judah's vices, and guess what? He takes the bait. Dressed in a disguise, she lures him, and he falls headlong into the trap, and he agrees with her of the payment of a young goat. I mentioned this before. This is interesting because we keep seeing the goat thing happen. I'd never really paid much attention to it as I'd read through Genesis, but when you think about it, how did Jacob trick Isaac? by wearing goat skins, didn't he? And then how was Jacob tricked by Judah and his brothers concerning Joseph's demise? They dipped Joseph's blood or robe in goat's blood. 
And now here is Judah himself being deceived by Tamar, who obtains this property of his for the price of a goat. These items that she obtained, this signet that's on the cord and the staff, were personalized items. They would identify who owned them. The, the, the signet is actually a seal. It was a, it's, an indiv- it's like your signature, right? And it's designed, it was a, a, a cylinder that was worn on a cord around the neck, and it was designed to roll in wax to seal a document to say that you had signed this, this was yours. So there was no mistaking who this signet belonged to. Even more so, the staffs that people carried had also been carved with very personalized, individualized carvings. There was no question who the staff belonged to. It is the equivalent of Tamar possessing Judah's wallet with his driver's license and social security card inside. She has the identifying property. Well, following the act, Judah sends his friend Hira. We, see, we keep seeing Hira in the story. He sends Hira with the payment of the goat. And I think it's implied here that Judah doesn't go himself because he's ashamed. He doesn't want to return to the scene of the crime, so to speak. He, it, he knows what he has done was wrong. But Hira is not able to find Tamar because she has taken off her disguise, returned to her widow's clothing, and no one seems to be the wiser. And we see the response of, of Judah in verse 23, the guilt and shame that he's trying to avoid. Listen, let, let, let her keep, he says to Hira, let her keep the things as her own or we shall be laughed at. He's afraid of being embarrassed, afraid of being caught, afraid of being called out. It's as if Judah's washing his hands of the whole event. He wants to keep it a secret to avoid the public shame. But what he doesn't realize is that Tamar is pregnant with his two sons, twins. And after three months pass, the news emerges that Tamar is pregnant. And Judah was told in verse 24, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah reacts in what exactly what we would expect. Right? Totally a hypocrite. Totally a hypocrite. And that's exactly what we'd expect from Judah. It's what he does. Bring her out. Let her be burned. Which, according to law, is what should happen. Go back and, and, and look at the... This is before the, God had given the Mosaic. This wasn't the, the Mosaic or the Hebrew law. This is the, the law of this time. And that was the law, only part of it. Guess what else was part of the law? The man was to be burned as well. They were both to die for their sin for their immorality. And so Judah responds to this in the most hypocritical way, having no idea that he's about to be exposed. As Tamar is being brought out, she sends word to Judah, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify these, the signet, the cord, and the staff. Now in this culture, Judah held all the power. And what we would expect of him next, after calling out, acting the hypocrite, calling out for her, her to die, and now realizing that he was about to get outed, what we would expect for him to do is to use his power to silence his victim. We see it happen in our own day. Those who abuse others often do this, try to silence their victim. But this is where we see the story turn. It's a remarkable turn, a turn that we could not really expect Judah responds to his exposure and says, the text says, Then Judah identified them and said, verse 26, She is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, Shelah. 
Judah owns his sin. Judah recognizes what he has done. I mean, think of the Judah that we've known so far, this callous, crass, coarse man driven by his lusts, driven by his appetites, who has run away from the household of faith, the man who has pursued his own pleasure and his own gain. There is no explanation for a turn like this other than the fact that the God of all grace quickened his heart. The God of all grace worked in his life and helped him to see his sin, caused him to see his sin. God is transforming Judah through the power of repentance that is demonstrated in the humbling confession, she is more righteous than I. Do you think this was easy? (laughs) You know, we look at Joseph being thrown in a pit, being mauled by his brothers, being sold into slavery. We look at that and go, that's not easy. This is not easy either. Though great are sins and sore are woes, His grace much more aboundeth. His helping love no limit knows, our utmost need it soundeth. Our shepherd good and true is He who will at last His Israel free from all their sin and sorrow. That's where we get the sermon title for today. It's from a hymn written by Martin Luther a long time ago, back in the 1500s. It's a psalm that was a song, a hymn that was written from Psalm 130. And if you read the hymn and you read Psalm 130, you can see how it's 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 inspired, if not almost in places, word for word. It paints a picture of our God who is gracious and redeeming, a God who works in spite of our sins, even our great and treacherous sins that we think He should not be able to overcome. God was at work. In Judah's life, in Tamar's life, and in the lives of his people to unfold his plan of redemption. And that plan is happening right here in the middle of all of this mess. Judah has been singled out, and we're going to see this articulated later in Genesis, to carry on, to to be the promised line. And Judah's not the firstborn. He's not even the secondborn or the thirdborn. Judah's number four, but the others get disqualified. He wasn't even born to Rachel, the beloved wife. He was a son of Leah. But it was Tamar who preserved this family line, a Canaanite woman. And yet when we open our Bibles to the genealogy of our Savior, Jesus Christ, in Matthew 1, guess what we see? In verse 3, Matthew 1, we won't turn there now, but you can look later. There's Tamar. Tamar. She's listed there. In the genealogy of Jesus, along with four, there are four women besides Mary who are listed in the genealogy of Jesus. Tamar and Rahab, you remember Rahab's vocation, both Canaanite women. Ruth and Bathsheba, a Moabite and a Hittite, neither are Hebrews. Remember what I said, this was not about ethnic preservation, but about holiness, about being set apart. You see, the hope for the nations that the gospel and the message that was one day to be announced wasn't just for an ethnic people group, but was for all of us. People from, as we read this morning, every nation and tribe and tongue is all the groundwork is being laid right here. Tamar, who had been discarded by the family, who had been left isolated, is now recorded in the line of the Son of God who would be born according to the promise. Jesus came then, not born in a royal line, preserved pristine. 
but in a line that was marred. A line that was imperfect. A line like our line. He humbled himself, emptied himself to become like us. And yet in this, he undid everything that we've done wrong, including what Judah had done. Again, I want to read from Ian Duguid. He says, Jesus inverted what Judah had first done to Tamar. While Judah had blamed Tamar for his sins to maintain his own innocence, Jesus took our blame and our shame so that it might be put to death with him at the cross. And he now covers us with his perfection, saying, You were righteous, taking away our sins and making us acceptable to his Father. In that way, he removes our curse forever and welcomes us safely into the family of God where we can be loved and protected by him. This is what Tamar needed. It's what Judah needed. It's what you and I need, the love and the protection, that anchor of hope in the one who has proven himself faithful. Joseph's brothers intended harm, as we saw last week, but God works through that to accomplish his purposes. Judah here lives for himself and his sons all act selfishly, taking advantage of Tamar, and yet God works through these to accomplish his purposes. And as we look down through the quarter of time in history, later Herod and Pontius Pilate and the Roman and Jewish leaders would conspire to, according to Acts 4.27, do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. Because you see, in spite of and even through the sins of these people, God works to accomplish His purposes. And so this means that all the stuff that you and I are facing right now, the questions, the hardships, the obstacles, even the persecution that one may, one, we one may, may face one day, that none of these things can frustrate the plans and the purposes of God. None of these can exhaust His gracious and redeeming work through Christ. So may we repent and turn from our sin and in our repentance discover the freedom, that true freedom that Christ alone can bring, liberating us from the penalty and the power of sin that weighs us down. And one day from the presence of sin itself, our shepherd, good and true is He, who will at last His people free from all their sin and sorrow. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we look at this and we see a mirror of ourselves. We know that we, like Judah and like Tamar and like the sons and like everyone we read in Scripture, we're sinners. We've, we've fallen away. We've gone astray. And our greatest need is to be rescued, to to be saved, because we can't do it ourselves. And so we thank you that from the mess, including this mess that we looked at today, as we trace that scarlet thread that runs through redemptive history, we come to the one who was promised, who would his people free from all their sin and sorrow. And so today we thank you for Jesus, who has paid for our sin, that we might be free from all of our sin and sorrow. Would you, Lord, remind us of that today? Would you free us from our sin and sorrow? Would you take the burdens? I pray for those who are weighed down by guilt and shame, maybe a sin that they've committed 
that they, they don't think you can forgive, would you help them to see the grandeur of your grace and the eff- efficacy of the work of Christ that no sin is too great? Lord, maybe someone who is burdened by a sin that's been done to them, would you help them to see the power of your mercy and the undoing effect of your redemptive work on the cross? Lord, for those who are concerned and worried about things that are happening in their lives, whether it's joblessness or health concerns or the events that are happening in the world, Lord, would you cause their eyes to be lifted up to the one who is sovereign over all, to see you in all of your glory, that you hold all things together, that you work all things together, and that even the sins of men, even our own sins, our most treacherous sins, cannot thwart your plans so that we can lay our heads on our pillows at night and rest in the peace that transcends and surpasses all understanding. Would you guard our hearts and minds in that peace? And would you give us hope, Lord? Give us hope that is found in Christ alone, we pray in His name. Amen.